I don't think in hindsight that there was a real understanding of what the requirement we were placing on customers as far as the need to be online. All right, today we are back with our part two of our deep dive into the culture uh, in DHS and DSS, the culture in the departments that designed and delivered RoboDebt and the impact that that culture had in shaping the outcome. I'm Alison Lloyd-Wright and I'm here with my fellow South Australian public servant, Caroline Crozabalo. Hello, Alison. And recovering public servant, Danielle Elston. Hello, Alison. So when we finished last time, we were talking a bit about the dynamic between... Melissa Golightly and Catherine Campbell as the Secretary of the Department. But what about in the frontline agencies? Was the culture any better over there? Oh, I wish the answer for that was yes, but unfortunately it was not. So they were beset by like deaf management un- under huge amounts of pressure. There was also things like large fluctuations in the workforce size and many challenges of the integration of their ongoing staff, so their employed staff, with this really large cohort of labour hire staff. This is like labour hire in Centrelink, is it? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of um, a lot of uh, transactional agencies use labour hire staff because they will do things like have big peaks at the end of the financial year. Mm. Or they will roll out a new program and that will require a lot more people to answer the phone. And so they have a a core set of ongoing staff and then they use a lot of labour hire staff. Okay. Um, Which is not actually – is is the model now, but it's actually not required. And one of the things I think that's really interesting when we start talking about the frontline agencies – is that uh, public service agencies in all jurisdictions, as far as I can see, don't use casual labour very much. Mm. So it's seen as too hard. Uh, My view of the industrial instruments is it's not that hard Um, and you could bulk recruit and have pools of people who only worked in, you know, July and August in the tax office if that's when your peak season is. Yeah. Um, But it it seems to have become an employment culture of – Ongoing staff, and if it's a, if it's for peak, you go to a labour hire company and you ask for 40 people in a call centre. Yeah. And surely engaging labour hire staff in a program like RoboDebt is part of the problem because they're not necessarily – I mean, we talked about the culture of being empowered to raise issues and feeling like you could do so without it being a threat to your job. Well, that threat is really real if you're in a labour hire oh, position. Well, if you're in a labour hire position, you can be told at the end of the day that there's no work for you f- – ongoing and there's no kind of impediment to doing that that's a part of the nature of the work and you get a loading to operate like that but still you are in a a position where putting your hand up and saying this doesn't sound right but the second thing Alison is those people will probably have been in other call centres and so they don't have that depth of knowledge and the ongoing staff are then left with this really big burden of being the only content experts experts. Mm. Um, and so the chance of them finding these things in RoboDebt was next to nothing. Um, so what were the submissions and evidence that came through in the Royal Commission about people, about Centrelink staff that went to culture? So there were a lot of individual staff submissions from Centrelink. Um, there was this one particular from Mr Simpson who worked as a compliance officer between May and December 2015, so not for very long. Um, And his evidence was that he and other staff members noticed quite early on that there were obvious examples of where RoboDebt was calculating supposed incomes based on invalid assumptions. Um, I look at that May to December and wonder why he only worked from May 
to December. Um, so his evidence is that he was told that management told him that they were not responsible for policy. It was not your role to question policy. It was your role to administer and carry it out, which is correct. Yep, absolutely. Um, and so he also gave evidence that effectively the people who identified concerns, raised them, were told to shut up. Um, his words, not mine. Um, so he said that they were also ranked against one another on a spreadsheet that tallied the volumes of calls made and debts raised. Oh. <laughs> with absolutely oh. no consideration of customer welfare. So it was like a real... It's not the... It's not a sales call centre, for crying out loud. Mm, but you're not going to reach your revenue targets if you're not wow. hustling, Alison. Wow. You can just hear the desperation in these submissions, right? Like, it's it's an incredibly high-pressured... It was a bit of a surprise to me, to be honest. I did not realise that we had spreadsheets on walls for number of calls made, number of debts raised. That Just that kind of... It's a... In, it, it's a work environment I just do not associate with the public service at all. Um, is it something that either of you have seen in that kind of um, – I, I, I did have one corporate services area that was putting up posters of kind of like how much leaving lights on was costing the <laughs> taxpayer. <laughs> like, My so, favourite poster was one to tell how dehydrated you were based on the colour of your urine. Oh, I oh. often refer to that in my thinking. Um, no, I've been up around call centres before, so putting in place IT call centres, putting in place HR call centres, and I've been involved in the establishment of those. And they are – it does always feel like a different kind of um, – a different kind of managerial skill set and and there really is a different kind of approach to management like it is widget mm. based and you really are talking about call volumes and we you know introduced particular IT systems to track how quickly people are picking up the phone and how long people are staying on the call so that doesn't feel so unfamiliar. The bit that feels super unfamiliar is the uh, chasing of vulnerable clients to ensure that you get your revenue target. That bit feels uh, frankly, gross. Mm. Yeah. There's another bit here where, that's different to what you're talking about, Caroline, which is that they apparently were not told what the KPI was a lot of the time. So they were having their numbers tracked in public on a wall, but would only know if they got it when, the, like, after the fact. So, yeah, you got you through your numbers, Caroline, but no one told you in the morning what your number was supposed oh to be. Oh, my God, this is like that recurring nightmare I have where I have to go back to year 12 and, like, yep. get the final grade again. Like, it's <laughs> like, that's terrible. Yep. No, it was – so they weren't told unless they were meeting them or not, but they weren't given this kind of clear information. So, like, there's these individuals telling us their individual story of it being pretty awful to work in such a – so it's not just numbers-driven, but there's, like, a lack of strategy to it. So it's about keeping people a bit panicked about meeting their KPIs. So that's them as individuals, and that's fine because there's a Royal Commission and we get to see them. Yeah. What about at a system level? Is there some kind of staff survey? We love a staff we survey. We do love a staff survey. So, yes, there was an actual system in place to hear from these people and count it and analyse it um, in an organised and kind of quantifiable way. So we have gotten in the public service very good at doing surveys in the last 10 years. They call them census. What's the plural of census? Sensei? Because that's not sounding right. <laughs> Sen- we'll go with sensei. <laughs> sen- <laughs> sen- <laughs> sen- <laughs> um, 
to tell us what our staff are thinking. And and so where I think all our leaders are still developing their skills is what, what they do once you get your survey results. So I've seen it done well and I've seen it done badly. Um, uh, spoiler alert, this RoboDebt example is definitely one of those examples of doing it badly. So it's like, I think it's common and corporate, it's common corporate practice now. And I reckon these surveys are because of the decline of trade unions in some ways, which is it used to be that the union would come and tell you what the staff were thinking. They wanted mm. blue walls, they needed an earlier start and mm. they'd negotiate an outcome. Mm. And so that's declined over time. And so the CPSU is a different story, ironically, but how I think these surveys grew and grew and grew is that it was the union was no longer telling management what the staff thought and so we started giving you a survey monkey and a Gallup survey to get you to tell us what oh, you think. Oh, look, and Danielle, because we want to talk to our workforce directly, we don't need a mediation of a Third union. Party, no. Yeah. Mm, mm. <laughs> so in 2017, Jason McNamara as Deputy Secretary Integrity and Information Group at the Department of Human Services, which is the, compl- the compliance area, gets his staff census report and it's very concerning. So he commissions some consultants to come and do workshops and deep dive into those results and culture. This is a pretty common response, yep. ladies. Done seen it, it a dozen yep. times. Yep. Get your results. Go, ooh, that yep. looks bad. Yep. Let's work out what's going on here. Get Let's make people feel safe. They can come and tell us what's going on. Yep. So they did that. Not uncommon. Across the country, so they held the workshops in the various different places, the Brisbane office, in all the various offices they held, they put them in a room with the consultants and said, hmm, you know, you've got a, you've scored very low on workplace satisfaction. Tell us more. And my goodness, did they cough that up pretty quickly to the consultants. The <laughs> language in the report is is kind of, is, is very emotive. So they, they produced a report. As I said, you do these workshops, you get a, usually get a report. Um, and it's on the Royal Commission website. And we'll so, link to it in our show notes. Given all we know now, this report's actually really explosive and kind of describes really poor communication from leadership to the team, poor management of people around workloads and use of temp labour, um, this issue of recruitment slowness that I felt overwhelmed with frustration just reading it having been in similar situations but not situations where they couldn't get a job description up to fill something permanently for seven years so someone was acting like that actually takes the cake from some of my most frustrating experiences um so this issue of not being able to recruit not like recruitment being really slow that meant more temp labor higher but it also meant i'm sitting here trying to get better i'm going up the ranks but none of it's permanent which means like what does that mean i can't speak up insecure yeah the uh, old chestnut of poor ict system slowing everybody down Apparent, apparently it took three days to get a password reset and so you'd have to sit there kind of twiddling your thumbs because your computer wasn't working um, and a team spread around the country with no cohesion, which I think is really relevant these days in relation to hybrid work. So they really deep dive into we all work for this group, but we're all over the place. And I have no relationship with Caroline in Brisbane, but she actually is really important to how I do my job. Yep. And I think there's a lot in that for kind of our current work environment. It paints a picture of a pretty disengaged and grumpy team in summary. Yeah. However, it also blows the whistle on the practices known to be producing false incomes. So, Alison, 
like we've talked about just before, we talked about there being this grumpy team, poor ICT, recruitment, template button. Like this is a list we all know. This is a list that isn't uncommon from the workshops and lots of, you know, emotive words in the report. But buried about two-thirds of the way under like other headings is this section I'm going to send you, Alison, to read out. It is three paragraphs, but I'm going to send you to read it out. It's called Integrity of Tools that is buried in this report on culture in the department. All right, here we go. Integrity of Tools. Not surprisingly, the suite of tools available to staff attracted considerable comment across all focus groups. Frustrations with having to jump from system to system to provide a customer solution were frequently referenced. That said, staff recognise that rarely does any organisation have perfect up-to-date tools supporting business delivery. Oh, good on them. The one area that required executive team attention is guided procedures. Without exception, every focus group identified flaws in the guided procedures that without human intervention by individuals who understand the process will result in erroneous debt calculations in over 90% of the cases. It was eloquently put by one individual, guided procedures are 95% of a good thing with 5% undermining the integrity of the process. The department cannot condone the promulgation of guided procedures that are known to be flawed. We have a duty of care to our customers to ensure that they are provided a service that delivers integrity at all levels. That said, an objective assessment needs to be taken on whether the identified deficiencies are genuine flaws or fall within the domain of customers taking personal responsibility for the provision of accurate information. The solution to this is to immediately stock take and assess known deficiencies as soon as possible. Which I'm sure they did, right, Danielle? Like having received this cracking report, I'm sure that they 100% did that. So I find this just extraordinary. Like that is effectively a summary of what I think the Royal Commission report will be. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Buried in a culture, a team culture report. Yeah. was, And I have to say... Um, it's not a super professional report. Often HR reports are more informal than reports you get as legal reports or compliance reports. And so they've picked up on this thing around the accuracy and that it's upsetting the team and that the team is trying to tell people about it. And I said they're not compliance people. They're not legal people. They've picked it up through the culture process and absolutely nothing is done about that feedback. So that's a great question. How do you change culture? You know, we've got this proliferation of consultants who come in and... Nothing wrong with consultants, write, Nothing wrong with consultants, Danielle. <laughs> let everyone write their feelings on a yep. sticky note and we'll have some nice posters about being kind to each other. Culture problems at Centrelink, culture problems at DHS, maybe weren't the cause of this, but they certainly contributed to it. Yeah. I had a boss who used to say that the best way of fixing culture was to do work together. And I think where he was going with that was this idea that that culture work for its own sake is kind of navel-gazing and pointless, right? Yep. Like sitting around and saying, oh, we should all be nice to each other, or we should all be inclusive, or we should all be curious. None of that means anything if it's not connected to the actual work that you're doing. And when it's when you are doing things on content and getting stuff done and sort of going through those conversations about, well, how are we going to do that? What does that say about who we are? What does that say about our approach to our work? That's when culture is made or remade. And mm. you don't remake culture through 
workshops about being nice to each other, you remake culture by doing the work differently and being conscious and articulate about how you're doing that work differently. Mm. That sounds very esoteric, but I think for me it's like the most important part of culture Mm. work is actually having something you're doing that's not just culture. Well, and, uh, you know, uh, I can't remember what it's from, but there's some TED Talk or something where a guy's talking about how culture and values aren't the thing that you write on the wall and that um, you can see video of the Enron executives <laughs> being handcuffed against a wall on which they had their, like... Integrity. Company values, <laughs> including integrity, <laughs> right? Which I always think is the hugest demonstration that culture isn't what you say it is, it's mm. what you reward. It's the behaviour that you reward. Um, and yeah, that's really interesting. That's what your culture will be. Yeah, I I completely agree that culture for culture's sake is something. It's it's like reports for reports' sake. It's the anxiety bits of paper we wrap ourselves in to say, Ooh, so true. Like it's an anxiety manic- anxiety yeah, blankets. Nice. Like um, where I know I've got a culture problem, and I definitely need to be able to tell a royal commission later that I've done something about it. And so I'll get the consultants in, and we'll do the workshops, and then I'll get the report, and then the report says I need to. Share more information yep. about what we are personally yep. or let's set up a collective uh, a team group chat to share our social activities. Yep. Those tend to be the sorts of things on those yep. action plans. And then that leader goes, ah, Tick. if I am questioned about the poor culture around here, can say I got the report and I ticked off the list. That's the reason that that industry kind of continues to promulgate. I think I think you're right about doing the work together. I think part of what we see here is at no point does anyone use the industrial relations system. It's got a reputation in the public sector as being too hard to use. Um, so it's too hard to do investigations and complaints. So there's a, 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 in my view, completely erroneous view that you can never get anywhere using those processes to remove people who are really badly behaving. Um, and so we don't see, so what you have is culture experts who, who do the HR part of it, the posters, the stealing, the feeling stickers on the walls. <laughs> and then you've got these other practitioners frequently in the same branches and units, but never the twain shall meet, who receive formal complaints and use a well-established legal system to interview people and make an assessment. Caroline is definitely going to disagree with me, but I... <laughs> deeply sceptical face that's sadly not shared on the podcast. Well, I just think those industrial relations systems can work really well, but they only work well if you have a leadership committed to making them work well. And I know you have worked with leaders who have and, and who have made it a pers- point of personal integrity to take those actions. That is not the universal experience. Oh, look, I agree with that. And you need two things. You need an expert so you need two things. You need a leader. Look, it's a delegate issue, a secretary or a chief executive who's usually the delegate for these matters who is interested in a fulsome report of that investigation, who is open to a recommendation of proper disciplinary action right up into including sacking someone. Yeah. You also need expert IR practitioners who know how to do that in a way that is you know, really respectful of everybody's rights and will stand up in industrial tribunals. Um, I think these are the lost skills and the reason I'd say that is we need the balance of the two. To my mind, we've ended up completely in the sticky note part of the world, which does have some 
value to it. Urine posters aside, I don't know where you were working. <laughs> I have a photo of it on my phone. It tickled me that much. But like, so that, that bit aside, we need these two things to be running together. If you feel unsafe at work, you should have a process that you need to go into. And we need a skilled practitioner and a top leader. And that team might still need to go through that process of, you know, identifying what's what's going on for them. But I think it's a lost in the public service and I think in these situations we see that it hurt them really badly like no one could complain about senior leadership smashing up phones because they didn't either know understand or had confidence in that IR system to work and I think Danielle to to the point that you just made about the CPSU a little bit earlier I think there is something about the role of unions as well and in particular, when you've got that big power imbalance, like I think there's something about the really frontline staff uh, that's an even harder place to start navigating your industrial relations journey from. And I think the CPSU were profoundly impressive yeah. throughout RoboDebt. Maybe we'll do right. a particular episode on some of the advocates and how they were listened to or not listened to. But they ran a campaign on RoboDebt both on the impact on the employees who were working with robo-debts, but, of course, indirectly about the poor people who were getting the robo-debts and really acted as a moral conscience in a way that people inside the system found it hard to be that moral conscience as well. So in the absence of leadership over the good IR processes, there are other Mm, institutions. Oh, and it's not to say that there isn't, like, unions remain an important part of that process. There are just whole sections of the public service where there is not, there's not a CPSU Centrelink division. So that is one of the most connected to its workforce parts of public sector unions in the country. And that shows in that campaign. Yeah. That doesn't exist. Absolutely. A lot of the time. Yeah. And so bringing us to a close on the role of cult, in robo debt i guess to paraphrase julia gillard it wasn't everything but it wasn't nothing either what do you think are the lessons that we need to take away from this for our own practice of the craft of public administration so alison you told at the beginning of the first episode that great story about the leadership shadow of the person walking around with the economist the way I always tell this story to newly elected, uh, newly promoted leaders is I tell them to watch out for how much funnier they are. Because <laughs> it turns out once you get promoted, you're super hilarious. And I have noticed as I've gone further and further up, I'm like, you know, like Hannah Gadsby got nothing on me, lady. Um, so I think for me as an individual, I think the conscious awareness of your leadership shadow is probably the best starting point as a senior public servant. Um, that's my key takeaway, I really think, because I think neither Catherine Campbell nor Melissa Golightly would have understood themselves to have been giving off all these signals saying, don't tell me things are wrong. They would have said, I desperately want to know if something's illegal. And they would never have understood how the culture they created made that almost impossible. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's don't fool yourself into thinking that you are listening to your staff. So, even with these processes of surveys and focus groups, it's about a really honest reflection of are you interested in knowing what they have to say And are you interested in actioning it? Yeah. Because if you're not, you may as well not ask. Yeah. yeah. Truly. Absolutely. And so I think it's about knowing what is tick and flick anxiety management and being honest with yourself about which of those two things you are, which process you're in. And I, I agree with you that it's about being really clear as a leader that, you have impact. So 
I think it took me quite a long time to realize that my behavior was having such an impact. So people would say, so-and-so came into your team quite quiet and they've left really confident. And I'd be like, yeah, they've had a great year, haven't they? <laughs> took me ages to <laughs> start. Might you, honey. <laughs> oh, and it's incredibly kind of, um, you know, self-involved, but it took me ages to realize that, yeah. that the improvements in some people were actually a result. And some people who didn't like the way I did things who left. Yep. So this is not like a story of my perfect leadership journey by any stretch. But it took me a long time to realise how much impact I was having and that some people, I said, didn't want to do it the way I wanted to do it and they left. That was me. Like it was me who set it up like that in a way that they didn't want to do. And then there are other people who have just blossomed and I have had a part in both of those things and I don't think in this story a lot of people understood how much impact they were having on the people and that the people delivered the outcomes. Yeah. I think for me it's about listening to... I guess, distinguishing the noise from the signals, right? What Mm. is just noise? You're always going to have some people who, Mm. well, there's always room for improvement, right? And how do you hear the real signal that people don't feel psychologically safe and that that means they're not going to raise potentially a really serious and risky issue with you? And how do you kind of keep a broader sense of those signals as well? You know, the AAT cases, the ombudsman's reviews, the other things that indicate that maybe actually there's something bigger going on here that in your very busy day-to-day you haven't begun to grapple with. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Great stuff. Till next time. This podcast was recorded on Ghana land and we recognise Ghana elders past and present. Always was, always will be. Just some appropriately bureaucratic disclaimers. Those of us in the employ of the state government speak in a strictly personal capacity, consistent with the Public Sector Code of Ethics, that permits public servants to promote an outcome in relation to an issue of public interest, in this case, the betterment of the public service. Nothing we say should be taken as representing the views of the government or our employers. While we've tried to be as thorough in our research as busy full-time jobs and lives allow, we definitely don't guarantee that we've got all the details right. If you want rigorous reporting on robo-debt, we recommend the work of Rick Morton at The Saturday Paper, Chris Naus and Luke Enrique Gomez at The Guardian, Ben Eltham at Crikey, and of course, the Robo-Debt Royal Commission itself. The first eight episodes were recorded before the Royal Commission launched its final report and so don't benefit from the great wisdom of Commissioner Holmes. Please feel free to email us corrections, episode suggestions or anything else at the Westminster Tradition Pod at gmail.com. Thanks to Pampot Audio for our intro and outro music. Till next time.